Last week, we learned that there are two kinds of wisdom in the world. One is the wisdom of God, heavenly wisdom, a wisdom which evidences itself in the church by good deeds, good deeds performed in a spirit of humility. Churches filled with God's wisdom then will be characterized by purity, peace-loving, consideration, mutual submission, mercy, good fruit, impartiality, sincerity. That's the, uh, the corporate atmosphere in which God desires his people to worship him. That, that's a church. That's a people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other so-called wisdom we saw last week is a wisdom opposed to God, what James calls the demonic wisdom of this world, a wisdom characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition. And those two sins, bitter envy, selfish ambition, they are the certain tell of the person who lives by the standards of this fallen world. It gives them away. And for God's people to be habitually and unrepentantly living in such a manner, it proves that there's actually actually a swamp of rebellion and evil lurking just below the surface of a, a counterfeit Christian veneer. In those churches where there is no peace, where there's quarreling, where there's fighting, it's not because the gospel is powerless to transform. It's not because the wisdom of God is weak. That church has stopped repenting of sin. It's because people have embraced the wisdom of the world. James 3.16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. In the church, envy, selfish ambition, lust for power, pride, frustrated desire, an unwillingness to put others first, a a real slowness to forgive, an unwillingness to humble oneself and imitate Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, peace cannot exist in such a sinfully toxic atmosphere. But that's precisely the atmosphere James is dealing with. Uh, There are evil passions at work in these people, evil desires, and a demonic wisdom, worldliness, is being evidenced. Is evidenced in their dissension and in their discord. There's fighting and there's quarreling amongst the people of God. And James writes in very forceful terms that this must not be. This is sin that must be repented of. And that's what today's sermon is about. It's about repentance. Uh, last week's sermon was about peace in the church. This week it's repentance in the church. And this text, I think, is good preventative medicine, New City, because we're not immune to the sins which destroy church peace. We're not somehow immune to preferring friendship with the world over friendship with God. That evil is always scratching at the door of our heart. It's always seeking admittance at the front doors of our church. And the believers to whom James is writing are in a bad way. They need to repent. We don't have all the details, but the details that we do have certainly don't paint a gospel-honoring portrait. James writes in chapter 1, verse 27, that one component of pure and faultless religion is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
And it's important, it's really important, we understand what that means. Just look with me for a moment at the top of your handout. I give a definition. The world is a very common biblical way of referring to the ungodly worldview and lifestyle that characterizes human life in its rebellious estrangement from its creator. So as Christians, we've ended that rebellious estrangement through accepting the reconciling work of God in Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet, we must constantly work to distance ourselves from the way of life that surrounds us on every side. By God's grace, we need to work to keep ourselves spotless from this world's, this fallen world's contaminating influence. So look at your handout again. The world is a very common biblical way of referring to the ungodly worldview and lifestyle that characterizes human life in its rebellious estrangement from its creator. To be friends with the world. James speaks of that. To be friends with the world means to adopt the world's standards and priorities, not God's. And that's the very language James employs in verse 4 of our text today. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Let's consider some of the ways worldliness manifests itself in the people James is writing to. And this kind of gets back to the question that Johnny asked last week during the Q&A. In chapter 2, James writes of fawning over rich Christians and callous indifference to poor Christians. That sin, that worldliness, is taking place in the church. In chapter 3, we see uncontrolled critical speech, again, in the church. In chapters 3 and 4, we see a so-called wisdom on display that's earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil, uh, which leads to quarrels and arrogance in the church, right? Bitter envy, selfish ambition. We saw back in chapter 1 a faith in God which is double-minded, double-souled. A double-souled faith in God that fluctuates with the circumstances of life. There's a sort of inconsistent spiritual schizophrenia at work here. And it's interfering, we're going to see today, with their life of prayer. Every local church is to be an outpost of heaven. But the world has gotten into these churches. This is a travesty. There are people in these churches who have become friends with the world. They've adopted the world's standards. They've adopted the world's priorities, not God's. And so James uses the strongest language imaginable. He writes in verse 4 that they are committing spiritual adultery against their divine husband. It's an older expression, but cuckold is a man with an adulterous wife. It's a noun. The word actually derives from the cuckoo bird, alluding to its habit of laying its eggs in other birds' nests. And James presents God as the almighty cuckold, the husband whose wife, the church, has been spiritually unfaithful and so has provoked him to jealousy. Some of these Christians are living lives inconsistent with the life-transforming power of the gospel. 
They're failing to put into practice what they profess to believe. And so James' overall message is a call to humbly repent from such a compromising, inconsistent spirituality. That kind of double-souled spirituality. So look at our first point. Point number one, humbly repent, Christian. God's people must not live or pray with anger and desire. Verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, evil desires, that battle within you? And, And husbands, wives, I want you to take note of this. This applies to marriage relationships as well. Right? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That, that's always one of the first questions I ask in marriage counseling. What is it that you want that you're not getting? And why is that important? Desires battling in the heart. Now, when, when James, when he writes about fights and quarrels, he isn't speaking about contending vigorously for the gospel. Uh, this isn't about taking a stand against falsehood and fighting in the church for what's right and what's true. Uh, though uh, even that needs to be done in a Christian spirit. No, these are fellowship-disrupting, peace-destroying arguments and conflicts within the church of Jesus Christ. Fights and quarrels prompted by evil passions warring inside the people. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, discontent, frustrated desire, covetousness. And of course, every Christian, every Christian has these desires warring away in our bodies. No Christian is a sinless saint. But in this case, these evil desires aren't being repented of. They're being given too much free reign in the people's hearts, nor are they being confronted with the gospel. And it's plain to see these evil desires are a source of dissension in the church. Verse 2, you desire, but do not have, so you kill Now, don't misunderstand that. James isn't writing to the the Hunger Games church. Uh, They aren't killing each other yet, but rather, if covetous zeal goes unrestrained, the danger of actual violence is real. Frustrated desire. That's a sin Satan can exploit to no end, in which he does exploit in countless, countless churches. Churches with people who want more than they have. People who are envious and covet what others in the church have, whether they're their position, their possessions, or their circumstances. And if those desires aren't repented of, if they're not confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if the church isn't guarding against being stained and polluted by the world, then disorder breeds in the church. Anarchy breeds in the church and every kind of evil. That's what James says. I I know I sound really intense up here saying this stuff. It's coming right out of the text. If you vacation up north in bear country, there's a whole set of protocols you need to follow in disposing of garbage. Otherwise, you could wake up one morning finding a bear in your kitchen. Uh, But the bear is not looking to eat you. He's looking for that T-bone that you ate last night and didn't properly secure in your bear-proof garbage bin. Beloved, our adversary, Satan, is a roaring lion, deliberately seeking to devour us. 1 Peter 5.8. That's a very 
vivid image. It's very evocative. And we give the devil license to roam around and devour peace in our church, at New City Baptist Church, when we stop repenting of our discontentment, when we stop repenting of bitter envy, selfish ambition, frustrated desire, covetousness. Satan can smell that worldly garbage. Both as individuals and as a church, we need to be guarding our hearts with gospel vigilance. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, you desire that, right? But you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. All right, let's take a moment now to examine our own hearts in the light of God's word. Brothers and sisters, are we unrepentantly discontent? with what the Lord in his sovereign providence has seen fit to bestow upon us. As we can see, this isn't just a private sin that affects only us in sort of this hermetically sealed compartment, just me, myself, and I. It affects the peace of our assembly. Are we dissatisfied with the talents and abilities and possessions God has entrusted to us to steward? Are we dissatisfied with how our talents are being used in the church? Or perhaps dissatisfied with the life God has called us to, be it our singleness, our marriage, our health, our bank account, our physical appearance, our brains, our career? Are we satisfied in God? Are we content? In him. Or do we desire much more? It's humbling to admit, but despite all God has done and provided for me in the gospel of his dear son, how often I crave more, much more. But I know I'm not content because I've stopped tamping down the pride and the envy and the covetousness and the selfish ambition battling in my, ba- in my body. I desire, but I don't have, and so I kill. And I know I'm not alone in my perversity. This is a humbling portrait of the depravity in all of our hearts. The Apostle Peter writes in his first epistle, 118, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Innumerable blessings. Just listen to that text. Innumerable blessings. Blessings beyond all comprehension, all ours for all eternity. And yet the evil desires, the evil passions warring in our bodies are still prone to say, Jesus, I'm not content with you. You've rescued me from hell itself. You've lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and set my feet on the rock. And you've given me a firm place to stand. You've given me everything in the eternal and ultimate sense. All things are mine in Jesus Christ. And yet my circumstances are such that I find myself covetously desiring what others in the church are, what they possess, what they so 
carelessly enjoy just taking things for granted, to my way of thinking, those very things which you and your divine providence have seen fit to withhold from me. But I think would make my life sing. Beloved, if those frustrated evil desires are not confronted with the gospel, if our holy motivation, if our source of life-transforming power is not linked with what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin, then our hearts are fertile soil for the seed of dissension. That's what James is warning us about. Envy, frustrated desire, lack of contentment. It will breed strife with our brothers and sisters. That's what's convulsing the scattered saints to whom James is writing. Verse 2b, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And that sin, in turn, has an impact on the prayer life of a local church. It destroys prayer. 2b, you do not have because you do not ask God. Oh yes, you, you ask, James admits, but your asking is done wrongly. It's with selfish motivations. It's for this reason that you do not receive. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Again, just infected by the world. Our whole motivation for prayer can be wrong. Our expectations for prayer can be utterly unbiblical. Because the God to whom we're praying is a figment of our imagination. He's not the the sovereign God who has disclosed his, his holy good character in Scripture. The holy God who does all things in accordance with the counsel of his perfect perfect will. No, he's, I think of God as being sort of like a benevolent genie who does my bidding. He's a spiritual vending machine who gives me what I order. A God who panders to my inflated ego, whose sovereign perfect will is subordinated to my perceived needs. He's a God, a small G God, who dances to my tune. Christian, if you want to know if there is too much of the world in your life, if you're identifying too much with the world's standards, the world's priorities, then a good place to start is with your prayer life. And that's why James writes in verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Which leads us to our our second point. You can see this in your bullets. And humbly repent, Christian. God is our jealous husband who hates spiritual adultery in his bride, the church. Our marital unfaithfulness is evidenced by our friendship with the world. I'd like to conduct an experiment over the next few months, and I'm going to need your help for this. I'm giving you sort of homework. In the church, and even in the culture at large, we often hear that God is love, right? We hear that a lot. Uh, Of course, this is often, often at the expense of God's other attributes, such as his holiness and his justice, but that's a sermon for another day. So here's the experiment. Here's your homework. The next time somebody says to you, oh, you know, God is love, I want you to respond, he is indeed And he loves us like a jealous husband. 
Right? Just try that. I want, I want you to note how they react. I want you to tell us about the look on their face. Come to prayer meeting that weekend and just tell us how that went down. God is a jealous husband, which is something we don't hear a whole lot about even in Christian circles. It sounds strange. It may, maybe even a little creepy. Because we think of possessively jealous husbands in a negative light, Right? Uh, to our thinking, jealousy in a relationship is related to insecurity and fear and control. We've all seen enough of Dr. Phil to know that. But James is using this concept in a beautiful way. It isn't creepy at all. His intention is uh, for this to be actually propelling our worship, New City. It should cause us to love God more and motivate us to repentance. James is a Jew, a Jew culturally steeped in Old Testament Judaism. And he's referring... To the Old Testament prophets. Men used by God to write scriptures centuries before Jesus Christ was born. And, and the prophets frequently compared the relationship between God and the people of Israel to a marriage relationship that happened all the time. Uh, think of Isaiah 54, 4-6. I'll just read this to you. Isaiah 54, 4-6. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your womanhood for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife, distressed, deserted, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. See, there's all sorts of texts like that in the Bible, texts where the Lord is betrayed as the husband and Israel as his wife. But that means when Israel's covenant relationship with the Lord is threatened by her idolatry, by her running after other small g gods, instead of worshiping Yahweh exclusively, Israel can be accused by God of committing adultery. Jeremiah 3.20 but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, house of Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. That text I read this morning, I mean, it sounds, it sounds awkward reading it out in public, but he's constantly saying, whoredom, whoredom, what have you done? I am your faithful husband, and you're playing the whore following other gods. James has called the Christians he's writing to, writing to here in this book, brothers and sisters, or dear brothers and sisters, 12 times so far, 12 times. Now he addresses them literally in the Greek text as adulteresses. He's following that same biblical tradition. Man, that must, that must have been like just receiving a punch in the face to actually have that letter read aloud in your church. You adulteresses. Oh, can you imagine having New City being called that? You adulteresses. Verse 4, you adulterous people. There's no room for evasion there, right? There's no room for qualification. You adulterous people, he's making their choice very simple. They must choose between one allegiance and another opposing allegiance. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See, that's the choice. And he's asking us, The same question, New City. Which is it going to be? And this requires our full attention. 
This is serious stuff. God's word says, by seeking friendship with the world, we are in effect committing spiritual adultery, provoking God, our husband, to jealousy and making ourselves God's enemies. That's serious stuff. But why is friendship with the world such a terrible thing? I mean, can't we be friends with God and the world both? Uh, Why does it have to be one or the other? You know, can't we just have our cake and eat it too? Well, something we need to understand about friendship in antiquity is that it was taken far more seriously than today in the West. Uh, No, hear this, no aspect of life was so highly valued in Greco-Roman culture as friendship. It was on a higher plane even than marriage in Greco-Roman culture. Again, that's not biblically true, but that's how it was viewed. But compare that to born and bred Canadians. Nine-tenths of my social media relationships are next to meaningless, right? If you're my Facebook friend, uh, sorry to burst your bubble here, but that doesn't actually say anything necessarily about the, the intimacy of our relationship. Even the closest friends I had growing up, from early elementary school, grade four, really, and on, and into my 20s. Sure, there's always, always going to be a real fondness in my heart for all those people. Uh, but I don't have a meaningful relationship now with, with the, most of those people. Um, I've lived in Toronto now for 20 years, right? I have new friends. Life goes on. Not so in Greco-Roman culture. Friendship was a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. And that explains the metaphorical adultery when James accuses these churches of being friends with the world. It's coming out of that kind of cultural understanding. To be close friends with the world means to identify itself, to identify with its standards, its priorities. Uh, Some of these people have the wrong object for a, a lover, right? Their lover is the fallen world system and the values of the unregenerate. 1 John 2.15, very famous text. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes and their boasting about what they have and do, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And and yes, while we want to be sensitive to avoid legalism and to celebrate God's grace in Christ, we also want to avoid absolute lawlessness, right? So instead of dogmatically and specifically applying what do not love the world means for you, following Andy Nacelli, I'm going to ask us just a series of questions now that I hope will make us all think. Right? And again, this goes back to Johnny's question last week. What are specific ways we are tempted to love the world? Here are some questions to consider. Christian, do you love the world <clears throat> when you think about sex? Do you think of sex as something beautiful and sacred that God created exclusively for a husband and a wife? Or have you conformed to how the world thinks about sex? Do you think that marriage and sex would be better if you or your spouse looked sexier 
according to the world's standards. How do you respond to the ubiquitous sexuality, all the, all the explicit images that uh, the world celebrates? How do you respond to that? Do you seek out such images? Do you take second and third looks when you suddenly encounter such images while going about your business? There is a worldly revolution in our culture regarding sexuality and gender. The issues include the role of men and women in the home, abortion, contraceptives that cause abortions, sex outside of marriage, same-sex marriage, transgenderism. Do you love the world when you think about sexuality and gender? How about using money and having stuff? There is a wise way to earn, spend, save, and invest money that glorifies God. It's not a sin even to be a rich Christian. But do you love the world when you earn, spend, save, and invest money? Are you letting the world influence what you think you need in order to be happy? Do you prioritize being comfortable and having nice things Or do you have a wartime lifestyle that prioritizes giving generously and spreading the gospel locally and globally? Do you find your treasure in the gold of this world, such as the newest smartphone or whatever the latest gadget is or clothing? Do you love the world when you plan your future? When you envision your future, Christian, does it look basically like the typical Canadian dream? How about using social media? Do you love the world when you use social media such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok? Are you so absorbed with social media that, there are, that you are lazy in real life and neglect your responsibilities? When you see updates on social media, do they awaken the desires of your eyes with the result that you envy people and you covet what they have? Do you vainly desire to have more likes and retweets and followers? Do you use social media to feed your ego? Do you mindlessly scroll through and absorb social media and thus let the anti-God culture constantly influence how you think about relationships and money and material possessions and social status and celebrities? Do you feel the pressure that you must always appear happy and successful on social media? and thus create a facade of the real you? Do you view immodest pictures or post them of yourself or your spouse? And by immodest, I mean lacking humility or decency. Do you love the world when you watch shows, movies, sports? Do you watch so much that you don't have time for more important activities? When you have some free time, is it your habit to spend that time entertaining yourself rather than doing something that's edifying? Do you allow what you watch to subtly shape your worldview to become more worldly? Do you laugh at what God hates? Do you view sexually charged nudity and rationalize it as being okay? Do you love the world when you eat and exercise? What motivates your eating and exercise habits? Do you want to have a body that looks strong or that other people think is hot? Relating to other people. 
Do you love the world when you relate to your family and your friends and your neighbors? Do you buy the world's lie that life is all about you, that what matters most is that you do what's best for you, that you should follow your heart and believe in yourself and as you selfishly pursue your dreams? Do you compare yourself to others and ruthlessly compete against them? Do, do you do everything you can to exalt yourself at the expense of others? Do you value having a prominent status more than you value serving others? Do you care more about what others think about you than you care about what God thinks about you? Do you shy away from sharing the good news about Jesus with people because you're afraid of what people will think about you? Do you do what you do because you want other people to accept you and think highly of you? Do you marginalize people you think are poor or ugly or stupid or socially awkward and give special treatment to people who are rich or good-looking or smart or popular? Do you love the world when you think about who you are? Do you find your identity in what other people think about you? or how great you are, or what you have, or what you have accomplished? Do you find your identity in being an outstanding student, or a model Christian, or a powerful preacher, or a critical thinker? When you realize what the world prizes, being brilliant, or rich, or beautiful, or skilled, or witty, do you try to get it? Or, if you have it, do you take pride in that, and then prominently display it? I mean, there's a lot of questions there. I could ask a whole lot more. But I think asking diagnostic questions like that about whether we're worldly is really worth doing because it can help us fight worldliness, right? As one preacher wisely exhorted, we must fight worldliness because it dulls our affections for Christ and distracts our attention from Christ. Worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious, You see, we cannot live in intimate friendship with God when the set of our hearts is towards the world. Such people establish themselves as God's enemies. That's what James says. Now, James' readers aren't consciously deciding to follow the world by overtly disclaiming God. This isn't deliberate apostasy on their part. They haven't deliberately started rejecting him. But their jealousy, their selfish ambition, their unrestrained passion all exhibit earthly, unspiritual demonical attitudes. They certainly don't act like friends of God. They need to recognize that their selfish, quarrelsome behavior is a serious matter. It provokes God, who is their husband, to jealousy. He's jealous. That attention, that love, that desire, all needs to be going towards me. I'm your husband. And by drawing out the ultimate consequences of their behavior in this way, James is really, he's seeking to prick their consciences and to stimulate repentance. Repentance. Verse 5, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, it's not 100% clear in this text if the spirit is the person of God, the Holy Spirit in this verse, or God's creative spirit, which gives us physical life, uh, the spirit which God breathed into Adam in Genesis 2-7. Uh, but in either case, 
The phrase reminds us that God has a claim on us by virtue of his work in our lives. God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. You see, we're in a covenant relationship with a jealous God, a jealous husband. Exodus 20, 5 to 6. Listen to this. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 10 to 14. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you, talking to Israel, before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome it is. The work that I do, I, the Lord, I'm going to do this for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or there will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other small g god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. You see, James is actually using the strongest language possible in this text. He's deliberately making a very striking, a very forceful application of his point by bringing in this Old Testament imagery of God being the jealous spouse of his covenant people. That marriage relationship explains, like nothing else, the seriousness of any Christian flirtation with the world. In any marriage relationship... Each spouse, no matter their age, their physical health, their mental health, physical appearance, their money, their brains, each must demand and each deserves total, total, unreserved, unwavering allegiance from their mate, right? A husband and wife are one flesh. There is an indivisible, indissoluble bond tying them together in the same way. Our God is a jealous husband, and he demands and he deserves unwavering allegiance from the people with whom he's joined himself. And if we find that an impediment to our autonomy, or somehow creepy, or somehow controlling, then we haven't understood the gospel. We haven't understood the God of the Bible. We haven't understood our relationship with him And we haven't understood the awesome, awesome nature of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. You see, we serve a jealous God who will brook no rivals for his affection. God demands, he demands that he comes first in our life, first. And God loves us enough to say, I will not allow anything in all the world to remove me from the center of your life, Gloria, Johnny, Victoria, Jill. I am your jealous husband. And that's not an egotistical, controlling, insecure kind of jealousy. It's loving. It's gracious. Because above all else, the triune God is jealous for the glory of his name. That is his name, jealous. God has bought us with the blood of his eternal son. We are a walking testament to the glory of the name of our divine husband, Jesus Christ. We're his bride. And Jesus will tolerate no rivals in our marriage relationship with him. Jesus plays second fiddle to no one. 
And he will not allow his bride to bring shame to his name by her flirting with the demonic standards and priorities of this fallen, passing world. So Christian, be careful. You're married to a jealous husband who loves you with an everlasting love. But his love for you is so linked with his self-love, his love for his own glory, that that glory will not be trampled on. So be careful. God will not hesitate to take away, take away those idols that push him from the center of your heart. God will not hesitate to take your wealth or your health, brother, if you love those things too much. He's a jealous husband. He will not hesitate to take your reputation, sister, if you love your social status in this world more than God. That's spiritual adultery, and God won't have an adulteress for a wife. He's a jealous God. What does Scripture tell us? If we're prideful, if we're conceited, if we're discontent, if we refuse to put others first, if we're filled with envy, if we're filled with selfish ambition, if we're quarreling, jealous, argumentative, then we're on too friendly terms with this world. We're compromising our relationship with God, and we must repent. That's not how the bride of Christ acts. But we're sinners. Right? I mean, we're naturally prone to this sort of evil, aren't we, all of us? And God knows it. God has no illusions about the kind of wife he has chosen for his son. Christian, there's no need to feel that being the bride of a jealous God is an overbearing, impossible task. God's grace is completely adequate to meet its requirements, which is why James says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. Yes, our God is a consuming fire, but our God is also merciful, he's gracious, he's all-loving, and he willingly supplies all that we need to meet his jealous demands. But his grace also demands from us the proper response. Humility. Look at verse 6b. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Proverbs 3.34. And then this verse acts as a springboard for the rest of the passage. This humility now becomes a dominant motif in the commands listed for us in verses 7 to 10, which is our third, our final, and very quick point. Because God's gift of sustaining grace is only enjoyed by those willing to admit their need and who accept the gift. New City, everything we're learning today needs to be understood in the light of this truth. Here it is. God opposes the proud. The proud meet only resistance from God, but he shows favor to the humble. Man, that can be a, just a life-altering concept to understand. I have a lot of opposition in my life. The last thing in the world I need is God also to be opposing me. God opposing me. Point number three, repent, Christian. Submit to God in humble obedience, and he will draw near to you. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That means place yourself under God's lordship. Obey him in all things, Christian, and resist the devil. Stand against the evil one. Oppose the evil one. If you do so, God's promise is that the devil will flee from you. Whatever power Satan may have, and he has a great deal of power, even so, Christians can be absolutely certain that we've been given the ability to overcome that demonic power. Submission to God is itself an act of resisting the devil. 
I'm gonna, let me repeat that because it's not my intention to sam- sample sort of 50 different texts now on resisting temptation. James is making a particular point here. Submission to God is itself an act of resisting the devil. Verse 8, come near to God. And humble repentance, right? And he will come near to you. So let's ask ourselves, how do adulterous, double-minded Christians come near to the almighty cuckold, who is our jealous husband? We who have allowed the world to entice us into friendship and away from total single-minded loyalty to our gloriously divine husband. What God requires of his new city, because he's writing to Christians here, not unbelievers, what God requires of us is humble repentance. That's it, humble repentance. Repentance from both external sinful behavior, which is what what James means when he writes uh, in the verse, wash your hands, you sinners, external sinful behavior, and then the internal attitude of Christian inconsistency, friendship with the world, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And as we move toward God, that's a great image, as we move toward God in practical responses of humble obedience, humble repentance, then God moves towards us. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Verse 9, James writes, Grieve, mourn, and wail for our sins, brothers and sisters, for our sins. Grieve, mourn, and wail. May it be deep. May it be heartfelt. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And he's writing that because, not because he's a killjoy. James isn't anti-laughter. It's that laughter in the Bible is often the scornful laughter of the fool who refuses to take sin seriously. Laughter in the Bible often is the mark of the person who prospers in this world with no care for the world to come. Jesus warns us in Luke 6.25, Woe to you who laugh now! for you will mourn and weep. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, let's pray to God for the grace to truly understand and internalize this scriptural warning. To live our lives with a kind of benevolent detachment from the world. I don't mean circling the Christian wagons and letting Toronto go down the spiritual drain. I'm talking about being a pilgrim in this world who's just passing through on our journey to our final home. A pilgrim who's not distracted by the idolatrous lovers surrounding us on all sides, enticing us away from our jealous, loving husband. I'm talking about living our lives living lives where we're so enjoying we're so enjoying rich friendship with God that the hostility of the fallen passing world is a small price to pay. Amen.